You guys can grab a seat when the world falls out from underneath our feet. We can be found standing in the love of Jesus, and that is our hope. That is the song that we sing. I want to say welcome to those of you who are here with us in person. I also want to welcome our online church family. If you happen to be tuned in this morning, we want you to know we haven't forgot about you. We love you. Let us know that you're out there. Let us know how we can be uh, praying for you. You got chat host. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, We are starting, actually last week, we started a brand new series called Lament, Finding Hope in the Rubble of Life. And uh, we, we talked about last week this really sad reality, this really unfortunate truth that we are the first generation of Christians in history that have no context to know how to lament. Right, we're, we're the first generation in all of Christian history that doesn't know how to practice this rhythm of lament in seasons of suffering and pain and loss. And consequently, I think the church is unhealthy because of the lack of this really important discipline and rhythm that Christians have practiced for 2,000 years now, and really the people of God for several thousand years. And so in case you missed last week, here's our working definition of lament. It'll be on the screen for you. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Now, I love the last part of that one, right? It's a prayer in pain that leads to confidence and hope and trust. There's always hope with God. In a real sense, lament is the song that we sing between the pain of life in this broken world and the promise to come that we have in Jesus. Last week, we also mentioned that lament is typically made up of of four different parts. And so for those of you who are note takers, man, you already wrote these down. If you missed last week, write them down now. These are kind of the four rhythms or flow that you'll typically find in a lament, whether it's Psalms or anywhere else in the scriptures. There are times where there may be only be three of these will be present, but typically it's all four and typically in this order. The first part of a lament is always turning to God, right? A lot of times our temptation is to turn away from God when things don't go the way that we had hoped that they would or wish that they would. The temptation is to kind of lose hope and turn the other way. But a lament teaches us always, always, always our first response in the storm and the chaos and the pain is to turn our attention and our heart's affection to God. We come to him. The second part of a lament is pouring out our complaint. And so last week we talked about the fact that many of us kind of wrongly view this as disrespectful. Like we can't really be honest with God. We can't really come to God with our real, raw emotions and feelings and and pain. And yet what we see is actually the opposite in the scriptures. God welcomes this from his sons, from his his daughters. He, He wants us to be honest and bring our complaints to him. And then the third part of a lament is asking for his intervention. It's saying, God, help me. Can't you see I'm dying here? I'm, I'm drowning over here. This is painful. I don't, I don't understand this, God. And yet I know that you are sovereign. I know that you are on your throne. I know that you are still good. I know that you have the power to intervene and do something. And so God, would you show up and do something? That is boldly coming to the throne of God and asking him to work in and through your life. And that's the third part of a lament. And then the fourth part is probably the most important part, my favorite part. It's a declaration of trust. Right? Where as, as God's sons and daughters, even in the midst of the pain and the storm and the chaos and the confusion of life, we can stand and we say, God, we still know that you're good. And maybe I don't understand why this is happening. And God, maybe I don't understand why this over here is going on in my life. And I don't understand why you're not taking this pain away from me, God. I've asked so many times. 
And I don't understand it, but God, I declare your goodness and I walk and I trust in you above everything else in my life. And when we do that, when we turn our focus away from ourselves and onto God and his grandeur and his goodness and his majesty and his power, that begins to do something and enliven something in our hearts that is very powerful and it frees us to walk through these storms of life in a way that we otherwise couldn't. See, lament is the language in a very real sense that God gives his people as a bridge from pain to hope. And so what we're gonna do over the next six or seven weeks as a church family is do our dead level best to reclaim this lost art or this lost discipline, at least in our church, right here at New Life Community Church in Asheville. Now just to kind of give you a heads up, in a couple of weeks, um, I'm gonna give you a homework assignment. No, many of you love that, right? When you get a homework assignment, um, this is gonna be your mission, should you choose to accept it. Uh, so just wanna kinda get you to, to begin to think about it, but I'm gonna encourage each of us, if you're part of our fa faith family, to write your own lament. And uh, th this is, a, again, this is a rhythm that we need to get into as the people of God. And so let me just encourage you, we've all got a story, we've all walked through seasons of pain in our life, so just kinda be thinking about those, those four elements of a lament, Maybe there's a storm that you're walking through. Maybe there's a storm that you just came through. Maybe there's something significant in your past, your childhood, your teen, whatever it is that really kind of formed you. Maybe there's a wound that hasn't really been healed yet in your heart. So let me, let me just encourage you, begin thinking about writing your own lament. There'll be some outlets if you want to share those with, with us as, as the leaders here so we can pray with you. We may even share some of those towards the end of the series. Uh, but be thinking about writing your, your own lament. Now today we're gonna drill down into the very first element of what uh, lament is which, is, which is turning to God, as we just talked about in our, in our pain. And so if you have a Bible this morning, let me encourage you, go ahead and open it up, turn on your, your phone, your device, head for Psalm 130. Psalm 130 is, uh, is this little gem of a psalm right in the middle of your Bible. It's, it's only eight verses long, uh, but it really packs a punch. It's kind of like my wife, Cheryl, just really small little girl, but she really packs a wallop. That's Psalm 130 here. It's been, it's been said that it was actually the favorite psalm of several giants of the faith, like St. Augustine, Martin Luther. In fact, it was Psalm 130 that is uh, widely reported that led John Wesley, the famous pastor and hymn writer, to faith in Jesus. So after he was already a pastor, it's this psalm, Psalm 130, that actually led him to authentic faith in Christ. And so it's a powerful little psalm that we're gonna be diving into this morning. Now when I was, um, I don't know, I might have been 15, 16 years old, definitely teen years, uh, the, you know, again, I don't know, 14, 15, 16, somewhere right in there. I was, I was with one of my best friends. It was just me and him, and we ended up at this, um, kind of this conference retreat center right outside of Birmingham, Alabama. It was the mid middle of the winter, so... Uh, February, and believe it or not, even in Alabama, it gets very, very cold. It was, it was cold that day, and uh, there was a, a lake right in the middle of this conference retreat center. So all these big buildings, kind of a lake right in the middle, and we're just kind of wandering around, as teenagers do. I guess we didn't have anything else better to do at, at 15, right, in the middle of February, and, uh, and we found a paddle boat, and we thought, oh, wow, this, is, this would be great. Let's get on this paddle boat and kind of go out into the middle of the lake, and this will be fun. And so we, we got out there. It's one of those paddle boats that's got the, like the big, huge, inflatable wheels on the side. You ever seen those? You just kind of paddle them like a bike. 
So, so we get out into the middle of this lake and everything was going well until we realized that, that one of the wheels actually had a hole in it and we were sinking. And uh, we were not close to the shore. It's like 25 degrees. And uh, we're like, oh, oh no, this is not good. So we try to paddle harder, but because one of the, the wheels is already underwater, we're just going in circles. We can't, like, we can't go anywhere. We're like, oh dang, <laughs> this, is, this is a situation that we didn't anticipate today. And uh, so, so panic started to set in. We're like, well, you know, we're yelling. Nobody can hear us. We're way out in the middle of this lake. We're probably at least 100 yards away from the shore. And we think, well, um, I get, you know, we're, we're going to freeze to death. This boat is sinking. It's probably going to be at the bottom of the lake in the next five minutes. We better do something. So we decided to take off our shoes and, and, and throw them. In retrospect, I don't know why. We still had, like, our coats on and sweatshirts and blue jeans and all that kind of stuff. But we, we dove in and we started swimming, which was the, the worst idea because then all these heavy clothes that we have now are full of water. And uh, man, I, I get probably 70%, 80% of the way to the shore. And, and I'm telling you, man, I just got, I got nothing left in the tank. I mean, it, it's, um, it's freezing cold. I can't breathe to begin with. All, all these clothes are, are weighing me down, pulling me under. And I'm, I'm fine. And I, I just remember that, that desperate feeling, right, of, of beginning to sink. And no, I'm going to fight more. And you come back up and you get a breath and you swim a couple more strokes and you go down again. And I just remember that, that heart-pounding feeling of fighting for breath and fighting for life, but feeling like I'm losing that battle. I mean, this is not going well. This is, this is it. This is how it ends for me. And that's exactly where we find the psalmist today in Psalm 130. Let's dive right in. Starting in verse one, this is what he says. Out of the depths, this is a, a picture of, of water. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, the language that the psalmist is using here is, is really painting the picture of someone who is drowning. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe you're like me, and you've had kind of a near-death experience by drowning. Maybe for you, it happened when you were a kid in a pool or at the ocean or at the lake or something like that. But if you've had a moment of panic like that, uh, man, it is, it is truly, truly terrifying. Right? You, you, you know what I'm talking about. If you've had one of these experiences, you know the, the struggle, the fear, the, the panic that sets in, the, the gasping for air, the flailing of your arms as you're fighting for life. Your life begins to flash before your eyes. This feeling of hopelessness and desperation sets in. And that's where the psalmist finds himself. Now, where does the psalmist turn when he feels like he's suffocating under the waves of life? Well, the very first element of lament Notice, he turns to God. Look at his words. Out of, out of the depths, I cry to you, O God. I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Now remember, that, that is always the first step of a proper, healthy, biblical lament is turning to God in our pain instead of running away from him. Now here's why that's important. When life gets tough, I've found that people typically either suffer in silence, and I would wager a guess that some of where many of you are right now, man, you're just, you're suffering in silence. You're walking through a season of, of pain and confusion and suffering, and maybe even the people around you don't know the depths of your despair. And you're, just, you're just walking it out. You're suffering in silence, and if that's you, I want you to know that's not what God has for you. He wants so much better for you. But that's what a lot of people do when the, when the storm comes, when the suffering comes, they suffer in silence. 
The other response that you see oftentimes is that people tend to run away from God when things get really, really hard. And I think the primary reason that that happens for a lot of people is that many people have believed the lie that kind of gets preached and talked about in far too many churches, especially in this country, this lie that a lot of pastors and churches are selling that, listen, if you just follow Jesus, if you just commit your life to him, if you just, if you just walk with him, then, then he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy, and you're never going to have any struggles again in your life. And so I think, man, I'm convinced there's so many people out there who signed up for Team Jesus, not because they actually wanted Jesus, but because they wanted what they thought Jesus would give them. So when the fairy tale life doesn't happen, when that relationship crumbles, when that child dies, when that career blows up, whatever it is, they feel betrayed. They feel like they were lied to by the church or God. They feel like they were sold a bill of goods and they tend to just kind of walk away and bail out. Now here, here's, here's the problem with that and I want, I want you to hear me say this. Jesus never actually promised any of those things. He never promised any of those things. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's the promise, that in, your, in this world, in this life, you will have trouble, but the good news is, he says, take heart because I've overcome the world. Another place in the Gospels, Jesus said, listen, if they hated me, if they persecuted me, they're gonna hate you, they're gonna persecute you. See, Jesus never promised to remove us from the storms of life He simply promised to be with us and walk with us through those storms of life. So listen, friend, when the waves come crashing in, when it feels like you can't breathe under the waves of suffering and loss in life, I want you to understand the key is not to suffer in silence. The key is also not to turn from God and run away from God because he isn't the genie in the bottle that you hoped that he would be. The key in that moment, listen, is to run to him. It's to turn to him and to run to him, to make a beeline towards him as fast as you possibly can. It's been said that the difference between religion and the gospel could be summed up like this. I'll put this on the screens for you. I love this. Religion says, I messed up. My dad is gonna kill me. Right, so there's, there's this idea of fear and insecurity and I better run from my heavenly father because he's gonna punish me, I messed up. That's what religion says. But what the gospel says is, I messed up, I need to call my dad. It's this idea of love and acceptance and man, I need to run to my dad as fast as I can because I am in trouble and I'm in pain and I'm suffering and he's the only one who can intervene and do anything in my life. That's the kind of father we have in God. And so here's application point number one this morning. When the waves come crashing in in your life, turn to God first, not last. Turn to God first, not last. And here's here's my admission. I am terrible at this. Because if I'm just being gut level honest with you, my instinct when things go sideways in my life, whether it's a relationship or ministry setting or whatever it is, my first tendency is to try to fix it on my own. To try to work it out in my own strength, to use my intellect, to use whatever skills I have to kind of fix the situation or massage the situation or manipulate things to where they're better. And, and far too often, it's not until I've exhausted everything that I can think of and I've worked everything out in my own strength that I could possibly think of that I actually turn to God. 
right? And it's almost like a, a break in case of emergency, right? And, and, and that is to my great shame. And what the psalmist is saying is, no, 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 believer, son of God, daughter of God, as soon as those waves begin to overwhelm you, don't try to get out of it on your own. Turn to God first. In fact, I would argue that this is what separates Christian suffering from worldly suffering. See, when people who don't know Jesus, don't have the spirit of God indwelling them, suffer, they tend to curse God and turn away. But when people who know Jesus and their lives have been revolutionized by this dynamic relationship with the Son of God that they have, and they have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and dwelling them and leading them, and they realize that there is always, always, always purpose in the pain. And they realize they actually know, they actually can have a conversation with the one who is all sovereign and all powerful and all loving and all good and the one who has the power to intervene and change their hearts and their circumstances. Those people tend to run to God in the storm. And that makes all the difference in the world. I came across this incredible quote, don't know who the author is, but I I wanted to share it with you. This will be on the screens for you. This author said, show me how you lament and I will tell you who you are. Show me how you lament, and I will tell you who you are. Show me how you walk through the difficult seasons of life, not the good days, not the sunny days, the cloudy days, the stormy days. Show me how you lament in the seasons of grief, loss, and confusion, and I will tell you who you are. And I just wanna say, listen, if, you're, if your faith, and I say this in love, if your faith tends to just kind of shrivel up and shrink up and die whenever the waves of life come crashing in, listen, you may have had a religious experience at some point in your life, but I am not sure that you've ever encountered the living God of this universe. Because those who know God and know his goodness and know his character and know his kindness and know his love, our first instinct must always be when the storms of life hit to run to him as a good father. That's always step one as we turn to God in the storm. Now, why is the psalmist crying out from the depths? What is the cause of this suffocating pain that he finds himself in? Look at verse three, he actually tells us. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, that's just kind of a, a, a bible word for, for sin, and sin just means missing God's mark for our life. If you, O Lord, should mark our sins, O Lord, who could stand? Now, this, in a sense, is really remarkable because the psalmist is identifying his own sin as the source of his pain and suffering. Now, to be clear, all pain and all suffering in your life is not a byproduct of sin in your life, okay? I just, I wanna be very, very clear about that. I think there are times when passages like this are, are abused spiritually by certain churches and certain pastors who would tell a person who is suffering with, illness, perhaps someone who's dying from cancer or just lost a a little child to death, they would tell them, hey, this is because of your sin. Or there are churches that would say, listen, if you just had more faith, then God would have healed you. If you just had more faith, you wouldn't have had to bury your son. You wouldn't have had to bury your daughter. And let me just, can I just say that is, that is wicked. That is an evil abuse and misuse of the scriptures to torture a person in pain. Suffering and loss in this life is not always connected to personal sin in your life. But with that disclaimer out of the way, let me also say that in in my own life, 
I have discovered that my greatest enemy tends to be the guy that I see every morning when I get up and look in the mirror. Far too often, the pain in my life, the suffering in my life, the destruction in relationships in my life that I've experienced tends to be due to my own rebellion, my own dumb decisions, me choosing my way over God's way, and him allowing me to taste the consequences of my own sin. The fiery, uh, fiery English preacher of yesteryear, Charles Spurgeon, I think said it best when he put it this way. This will be on the screen for you as well. He said, beware of no man more than of yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. See, the reality is we have to deal with the brokenness in here before we deal with the brokenness out there. And so many of us want to start in the wrong place. We want to deal with the brokenness in our nation, and we want to deal with the brokenness in Washington, D.C., and we want to deal with the brokenness in downtown Asheville, and we want to deal with the brokenness of our spouse who's affecting me, or we want to deal with the guy who just cut me off in traffic, and we need to deal with his sin. But the reality is, listen, part, part of healthy lament is always, always, always starting at home, starting with personal self-examination and looking inside. We gotta deal with the brokenness inside before we can deal with the brokenness outside. So let me just ask you a question. Friend, when, when is the last time that you've actually grieved over your own sin? Not the sin of our nation, not the sin of whatever party you don't like. When's the last time you actually grieved over your own sin? When's the last time you, you mourned, you just came to God with a broken heart and just mourned your own brokenness and the chaos that your own sin has caused in your life? King David wrote in Psalm 51, O God, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Jesus' half-brother in James wrote, God humbles the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, church family, here's the deal. A huge part of lament must always begin with self-examination. It starts at home. It starts with your heart. It starts with my heart. And so here's... Second, second application this morning, believer, we have to learn to acknowledge the problem. And the fact of the matter is that sin is real and it is absolutely devastating. We've got to acknowledge the problem before we ever, ever think about getting to the solution. Now, now listen, I, I just, I'll tell you, this is, this is not in vogue to preach in modern American churches. In fact, Many church growth consultants would tell you, don't preach on sin. If you want your church to grow, don't preach on sin. Don't preach on the cross. Don't preach on the blood of Jesus. But I'm just telling you, our entire faith hinges on these concepts. And so we're gonna, we're gonna unapologetically preach these truths. And so I just, I want you to know, because I, because I love you, I want you to know, sin is not a pet. Right? Sin is not something that you just kind of can kind of lead along on a little leash and it's not really a big deal. When nobody's looking, you just kind of pick it up and cuddle it and keep it in the closet and nobody sees it. No, 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 no. Sin is not a cute little pet. Sin is absolutely an apex predator that desires nothing more than to rip you apart and eat you alive. Man, it reminds me of these crazy loony people you see every now and then on, uh, on the news or like a YouTube channel or something that 
you know, they rescue like a little tiger cub or like a little grizzly bear when they're little and like hand feed them bottles and stuff. And, you know, they got these footage of this dude wrestling this 800 pound African lion and they're interviewing him. And like, aren't you like, aren't you scared that this wild animal is going to turn? Oh, no, a little Sammy, man, we have a tight relationship. And I, and every time I see these things, I'm like, give it two years. I'm going to read about this on the news. Like, he's going to eat you for a snack. And sure enough, almost every single time, man, two, three years later, there's a headline out there. That cat got eaten by a, a lion or something. I uh, had a, a nightmare a couple of nights ago. Um, there's a show, I think it's on National Geographic, called Trafficked. I don't know if some of you guys have, have seen it, but it's a pretty remar mar mar remarkable show where this lady goes in and um, kind of interviews all these uh, underworld drug lords and kingpins and all this kind of thing. And, the show that I watched was about smuggling uh, guns to the cartels in, in Mexico. So I had this nightmare, and, and in, this, in this dream, Cheryl and I were in this, in this foreign country, and we were actually working in tandem with the cartels, right? And so we were like helping them smuggle uh, uh, guns and stuff. And, um, and, and I looked down, and, and, and part of my finger was missing. Like, so I could, I, see, I could see my nail, but as soon as I peeled my nail back, it, the inside of my finger was hollow. Like I had an infection that it had eaten away the bone. And, and, I, and I had this, this moment of terror in my dream. Because, you know, when you're, when you're dreaming, these things feel very real. Like I felt like this was really happening to me. And I had this moment of terror. Like, man, I'm in this foreign country. There's not good medical care here. I don't even know where the doctors are. I don't know how to get antibiotics. Man, and if I don't get somewhere quick and I don't get this infection cut out and I don't get antibiotics, like this thing is going to spread. I could lose my whole hand. I could lose my whole arm. If this thing goes on long enough, I will lose my life. And I had this moment of panic. And I woke up and my very first thought was, and that was a perfect illustration for this coming Sunday, right? And when you wake up from a nightmare and your first thought is how I, you can leverage it for your uh, sermon illustration, you know, you got pastor problems, right? But that's, listen, that is precisely what sin does. It's an infection. And if we don't deal with it appropriately, in a, in a timely fashion, if we don't ruthlessly kind of cut this stuff out of our lives, that infection, just like the one in my finger in the nightmare, will absolutely spread, right? And the pain will set in and infest, and eventually death will set in. Now, there are two ways I think I've seen that people tend to, even in the church, deal with sin wrongly. Number one, I see people that tend to live under shame when it comes to dealing with their own sin. I also see another category of people, and this is a category that, that seems to be growing in our culture, and I would say these are people who live under deceit. Now, the people that live under the category of, of shame, are, these are people that know that they're messed up, they know they're jacked up, they know that they're just kind of perpetually sinful, they know they don't drift towards holiness, they actually drift towards sin, and they're ashamed. And so they live their entire lives almost in hiding, and so they kind of put on the plastic smile, the plastic face, and wherever you meet them, they kind of pretend like everything is good at home. And, and I think the reason that they live these fake lives is because the fear is, man, if people really knew who I was, if people really knew the thoughts that I think, if they knew the words that I said when nobody was around, if they knew the things that I looked at at night when nobody else is around, man, nobody would ever love me, nobody would ever accept me, everybody would reject me. And so they live these fake lives. And can I tell you, man, there, there is nothing more exhausting and more lonely 
than trying to project a false self to everybody around you so that they'll accept you and love you. There's nothing more exhausting than being around one person and projecting one image that you think they're gonna like and then being around someone else and projecting a different image or version of yourself so that you'll be accepted by them. That is exhausting. And it's lonely to live such a fake life. But there are so many people that are living under this condemnation of shame because of their sin. Now, the other category of person, again, this was, I, you hardly ever saw people like this 10 years ago, but our, our culture has shifted so much. I would say maybe even the majority of people are under the second category now. It's people that live under deceit. And these are people that think that they're ultimately not very bad, right? You know, you know people like this. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you're in the room and you would be in this category yourself. And these people, their attitude is kind of like, yeah, man, like I, I mess up a little bit and, and, and yeah, I have a little bit of sin in my life, but, but I've, never, I've never murdered anybody. I'm not a serial adulterer. Like I haven't done anything crazy. Like compared to most of my classmates and most of my neighbors and coworkers, like I'm practically Mother Teresa compared to them. I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at the end of the day. And so these people tend to minimize their sin to gloss over their sin, to kind of paint a veneer over their sin and pretend like it's not all that bad. And so these people tend to live under the illusion that they're not drowning when they're actually sinking. And whether you're living under shame or you're living under deceit, I want you to know the end result is exactly the same. The cancer of sin begins to spread. And it infests and infects and eventually it kills. Listen, friend, we have to acknowledge the problem before we get to the solution. We have to acknowledge the problem of our own wicked and sinful hearts before we can apply the cure. And the psalmist gives us the cure. Thankfully, mercifully, in verse four, he says this, but with you, he's talking about God, but with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. That word feared means revered, respected, loved, followed. With you there is forgiveness. So what's the solution to drowning in our own guilt and our own sin? The psalmist says hey, we, we are to acknowledge and confess our sins because forgiveness is found in God. And so application number three, forgiveness equals freedom. Forgiveness equals freedom. Many of you are searching for freedom. You wanna be freed from that, that burden of guilt and shame, of living that double life, of always trying to project something that you really aren't so that you'll be loved and accepted. And you're looking for that freedom, but you're looking for that freedom in all the wrong places. Ultimately, that freedom can only be found in forgiveness in God. Now, I want you to know if you're in the room and you're in Christ, and I'm not, I'm not talking about, hey, if you grew up in church, hey, if you claim to be a Christian. I'm talking about if you've, if you've ever actually truly placed all of your faith, all of your trust in Jesus. You've repented of your sins, placed the full weight of your hope, your trust, your allegiance in Jesus. I want you to know that you have that forgiveness. It's yours. That forgiveness that leads to freedom, it belongs to you. You are no longer a slave. You are a blood-bought son or daughter of the king of this universe. You don't have to live in shame anymore. It's safe to come out from hiding and be who you are in Christ because he is enough in you and through you. Now, we still need a healthy rhythm of daily heart cleansing, right, where we confess our sins to God, but we have been freed and forgiven. That's our identity. I also want to say if you're here or you're watching online and you're not yet in Christ, I'm so happy that you're here. I'm so happy that you're tuned in with us, but I need you to know that the condition that you're in right now, you currently stand outside of the forgiveness and freedom that can only be found in Jesus. 
And whether you realize it or not, you are a slave to your own sin and you stand condemned in front of a perfect and a holy God because of your rebellion and your sin. And that is, that is why the gospel that we preach and we sing from this stage and we pray every single week is such good news. It's this news that even while we were, we were slaves to our sin, and by the way, that was all of our stories. None of us got there on our own. None of us got there because of our own good merit, our own good works. We were all slaves to, our, to sin, our own sin. But the great news is that Jesus came into this world and he lived a perfect and a sinless life in place of our imperfect and sinful life. And he died that bloody, brutal death on the cross, the one that we deserve to die because of our rebellion. And he rose again on the third day and he now offers us that forgiveness and that freedom. And so listen, follower of Jesus, learn how to embrace forgiveness. And that's a challenge for some of you, isn't it? To really embrace forgiveness that God has removed from you your sins as far as the east is from the west because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what some of you need to hear more than anything else this morning. You need to press into the forgiveness of God. You need to run into it, embrace it, stop hiding in the shadows. We are all broken people who have a great savior. This is part of lament, learning how to embrace forgiveness, our new identity, freed, forgiven sons and daughters of the king. Look at verse five. He writes, I wait. Now notice the themes that he kind of paints for us here as he closes. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now, what's our response? What's the correct response to the forgiveness of our sins? It seems kind of strange, but the psalmist says, wait. Our response is waiting in hope. Right? He, he actually closes by making this incredible connection between waiting on God and hope. Now, a lot of us kind of get the, that order reversed, right? We, we want the hope now. We want the hope on the, on the front end. We want the solution on the front end. We want God to heal and restore on the front end, and then we're willing to wait. And God kind of flips the script on us. He says, you know, I'm going to give you the hope, but I want you to wait with me. I want you to trust in me. I want you to walk with me. And I have to admit, man, if, there, if there's one thing I tend to hate more than almost anything in life, it's waiting. I mean, I'm just, I'm not good at it. I get irritable in traffic, which is why I try to stay away from South Asheville after 4 p.m. I know some of y'all live out there, right? I hate it, man. I hate standing in line at the store, right? I get fidgety. I just, I'm a, I'm a man in need of constant patience. And I don't know if some of you can relate to this or not, but I just, and I don't know if this is part of uh, me having ADD or just how I'm wired, but I just live with this perpetual sense of urgency that I can't turn off, right? Like I can be sitting on the couch watching a movie on Saturday. I just have this, this sense of urgency, like, man, I, I need to be doing something. I need to be going. I gotta do something. I need to, there are things I need to accomplish and I don't know how to turn it off. And yet, don't we live in a culture that actually kind of glorifies and gratifies this idea of not waiting on accomplishing, on instant gratification, we live in the land of fast food, 
We live in the land of, of fast passes at Disney World so you can kind of skip everybody, all the other poor peasants that couldn't afford it so your kids can go first. Really Christ-like concept, you know? <laughs> Not that I'm judging you for doing that with your kids at all. <laughs> Microwave popcorn, instant dinners, right? You name it, that's our culture. And what the psalmist is saying here in 130 is, listen, he's saying God's economy doesn't work that way. I don't really care about the American system of doing things. I don't care what your culture gratifies and glorifies. I'm telling you, God's economy, his system, doesn't work that way. And so here's the last application. Number, number four, we'll begin to land the plane. Believer, we must, 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 must learn the art of waiting and hope. And we've got to learn the art of waiting and hope. And we are so, most of us are so bad at this. Because, see, here, here, here's, here's the secret. You ready for this? This is kind of the secret sauce of the whole thing. So, so often, hope is found in the waiting. So often, hope tends to be found in the quiet moments of prayer, not the moments of pressing forward and accomplishing. So many times, hope is found in the reading of the word, those quiet moments, meditating on the promises to come. But the truth of the matter is many of us never slow down enough to drink in the hope that's found in the stillness of waiting and trusting in God because we get impatient and we demand answers and we demand solutions right now. And when those things don't happen right away, here's what we tend to do. We tend to take matters into our own hands. We tend to try to press forward, we tend to try to unlock what God has locked for our own protection. We tend to try to walk through doors that God has closed in his love for us. And instead of finding hope, we end up finding more pain and more suffering and more loss. Christian, follower of Jesus, we've got to learn the art of waiting on God in hope. This is a critical part of healthy lament. Listen, friend, don't, don't rush through the pain. Don't, don't try to press past and push past the lessons that God is trying to breathe into your heart in the middle of the storm. Sit in the pain. It doesn't feel good. Our tendency is to try to get out as quickly as possible. But I think the psalmist is encouraging us. Sit in the pain, feel the loss, Listen to God's still quiet voice and wait on him. Hope is found there because God's promises are always true. I love the way King Solomon puts it in Ecclesiastes 7.4. He writes this, the heart of the wise is in the house of the morning. Now, our culture would look at that and say that's asinine. That is, that is insane. That you would find wisdom, that you would find hope, that you would find trust while sitting in the rubble of life, while sitting in the, the pain of life. No, no, you should try to get away from that stuff as quick as possible. And yet God in his economy says, no, 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 slow down, slow down. You've gotta learn to wait on me. I'm gonna breathe the hope into your life, but it happens on the journey as you wait on me. See, the reality is sometimes the healthiest thing you can do is to sit in the house of mourning and to wait on God and to find your hope in him. Church family, don't, don't rush lament. 
Don't rush, lament. God's not in a hurry. You might be in a hurry. God's not in a hurry. He's got all the time in the world. He's got all the time in the world. Learn to wait on God, to trust in him, to walk in those quiet moments of pain and suffering and let God breathe hope into your life and your situation. Now notice where the psalmist says he finds his hope. In verse five, he says, God, in your word, I find hope. And what I think the psalmist is saying here is he's saying, listen, God, until I hear from you, God, right, right in the middle of the storm, and, and until, until you show up, God, until you speak a word, God, I, I'm not moving from where I'm at. I'm not trying to get ahead of you, God. I'm not trying to get behind you, God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be right here. I'm gonna wait on you. I gotta hear from you, God. Because unless you show up, I'm a dead man. God, unless you show up right now, I'm gonna drown. God, because you are my source of hope. You are the only source that can cleanse me from my own sin that I'm drowning in, God. You are all that I need, and so I'm waiting right here until I get a word from you, God. And church, I want you to listen to me. God has given us his greatest and his final word in Jesus. He's given us his greatest word in Jesus. I want you to listen to what John says in John chapter one. It says this, and the word, that's Jesus. Jesus became flesh, and he dwelt among us. He came on a rescue mission for you, friend. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is that greatest and that final word from God. He is the answer. He is the one who can heal the parts of your heart that you thought would never be healed again. He is the one who restores and redeems. He is the one who pulls us from the depths of the waters that we thought were gonna drown us and he sets us in high places. And some of you are like the psalmist this morning and you are drowning in a sea of your own sin and your own guilt and your own shame. And you hate it and maybe even you hate yourself. And if that's where you find yourself just kind of driven by guilt and shame and you kind of live in this fake life because you're so afraid someone's gonna discover who you really are and reject you for who you really are, if that's where you are, you're drowning in your own shame and sin. I want you to listen to this. I'm gonna put this on the screens for you. This is 1 John 1. Listen to this promise. If we confess our sins, the first part is confessing our sins, not glossing over them, not pretending like we don't need it, forgiveness, not pretending like we're too good for God. If we are honest with ourselves, if we will confess our sins, listen to the promise. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, that's really good news. He's faithful to cleanse us from all our, not just little sins, I'm talking the deep, dark stuff that you're hiding and you hope nobody ever finds out about. He cleanses that too. And he will wipe it clean. He will remove your sin and your unrighteousness as far as the east is from the west. That's his promise to you this morning. And others of you, maybe you're here and you're that other category of person and you're just like, man, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. Man, I, ne I never killed anybody and I'm actually pretty good. I, I recycle sometimes and I I'm actually a kind of a good human being. And listen, I just wanna say, if that's you, I just wanna say, until you can see clearly the seriousness of your own sin and your rebellion 
your outright rebellion against a perfect and holy God who loved you so much that he came into this busted up world and he lived a perfect life for you and he died a brutal death for you and he rose again to give you life and freedom until you can see the depravity and wickedness of your own sin in your heart. Listen, you will always be blinded to the beauty and the grace that God offers you. And if you can hear the gospel message and it's not compelling to you, if you can hear the gospel message and you don't feel the weight and beauty of it, might I suggest to you that you see your sin in a very small light and it's crippling you spiritually. And if that's where you are, my prayer for you is that maybe for the first time you'd be able to sense and feel the weight of your own sin and your need for a savior because you are drowning and you don't even realize it. Now, regardless of whether your suffering today is self-inflicted from your own sin like the psalmist, or maybe your suffering just as a byproduct of living in a broken world, lament reminds us where hope is found, and our hope is always found in Jesus and him alone. And so I just wanna say, man, if, if, you, if you've never turned to him ever before in your life, let me, just, let me just plead with you for a minute, friend. There's never a better decision that you could ever make. If you've never done that, I don't care if you're religious, I don't care if you grew up in church, I don't care if you've read the Bible from the front to the back. If you've never surrendered your life to him, would you, would you do that today? Would you pledge your allegiance to him and say, yeah, Jesus, for the rest of my life, you're my king. And I'm walking with you and for you to the end. Now, maybe you've, maybe you've drifted, you've wandered away. And if that's you, let me just encourage you, come home. Come home today. Jesus awaits you with arms wide open. We're gonna celebrate this reality now in a really tangible way. So we're gonna celebrate communion, time of communion. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper. Just encourage you, go ahead and grab your elements that you should have gotten on the way in. If you're a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you to participate. If you're at home, grab your, your juice or your sweet tea or your, your crackers, bread, whatever you got. And this is, again, this is a time for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus. If you haven't done that, would encourage you just to sit back, watch, relax. This is a time where we remind ourselves, we remind each other of what Jesus has done for us, that he has given us freedom from our sins because of his life, death, and resurrection. And you guys probably know the story in the Gospels. The night before Jesus was crucified, he was sharing a meal with his disciples. It's known as the Last Supper. And after he had given thanks over the bread, he gave thanks to his father, he broke it apart, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We do this in remembrance of him. And after that, he took the cup from the table and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Church, would you stand with me as we pray and get ready to sing? God, would you help us in those moments of pain and suffering to, to not suffer in silence, God? Help us not to turn from you and run from you when the pain comes, when the waves seem like they're suffocating us, God. Help us always remember to turn to you first. You are a good father and you invite us to come to you with our complaints and our pain. And you wanna step into those situations and you wanna walk through the pain and the storms with us, God. So would you remind us constantly that you are our God in the good days and the bad days, when the sun is shining and when the waves seem like they're gonna overcome us in life, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, God. 
We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's sing.